It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of some of our finer pieces of prose from this week. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on the menu this week... China pushes pedal power on its city streets. Fast food joints in Japan look for a little more sizzle. And is Argentina's flag the wrong shade of blue? But first, game change was our cover line this week. In a remarkable surprise, Britain's Prime Minister Theresa May has called for a general election. A stronger majority might seem worrying to those who voted to remain in the European Union, but the result could in fact yield a better Brexit as our cover leader explained. Mrs May is aiming for a hard exit, needlessly taking Britain out of the EU single market so she can clamp down on immigration, which would do more harm still. The election looks likely to strengthen her hand. For the 48% of voters who, like this newspaper, opposed Brexit, this election may therefore look rather ominous. In fact, it offers an opportunity for those who believe in a more open, liberal Britain. A bigger majority would leave Mrs May freer to strike sensible compromises with the EU. And the election provides a chance to give Liberals of all political stripes a louder voice in the debate that will dominate the next few years. So a less damaging Brexit may be on the cards then. Businesses, lobby groups and, of course, private citizens have a chance to make the case for a soft Brexit both during the campaign and after it, during the long months of negotiation to follow. The battle over Brexit was fought last summer. The battle to define what form it should take is far from over. To read all of our analysis on the British election as it develops, head to our website at economist.com. The British will soon decide who will be the next prime minister to fly the famous flag of red, white and blue. But over in Argentina, the talk is of which colour the national flag should be. It is ubiquitous across the country and distinctly recognisable, a golden sun over stripes of pale blue. But are those stripes the right blue? According to a piece in our America section, perhaps not. A huge monument in Rosario, a port city, marks the site where Manuel Belgrano, a founding father, raised the first flag in 1812. On the anniversary of his death, June 20th, schoolchildren pledged to honour the white and sky blue colours. But will they be honouring the correct hue of blue? A study published in a recent edition of Chemistry Select suggests not. Researchers at Argentina's Scientific Research Council, CONICET, and Brazil's Federal University of Juiz Gifora examined silk threads from what is thought to be the oldest surviving flag, the enormous but faded San Francisco flag. The shocking discovery... Its blue was ultramarine, a much darker pigment. This may seem petty, but the national blue is tinged with a bitter history. Years of civil war followed Argentina's independence from Spain in 1816. 
The Federalists, led by Juan Manuel de Rosas, a blood-stained autocrat, fought for decentralised government with strong provinces under dark blue colours. The Unitarians, who wanted a strong central government in Buenos Aires, rallied to the lighter shade. The colour war has never really ended. From Argentina, we now move over to Asia. Over in China, there's a transport war unfolding along the urban roadways. Where bikes once clogged the streets, cars now choke out the competition. But new high-tech bicycle-sharing schemes across the country are trying to overturn the balance, as an article in our China section reported. For years, bike-sharing schemes have been common in big cities around the world. But most of these require riders to return their bikes to docking stations. In China, a more user-friendly approach is spreading rapidly. It involves bikes that can be paid for using a smartphone and left anywhere. GPS tracking enables them to be located with a mobile app. The idea has been rolled out successfully by a few Chinese firms. The first such service was launched in June 2015 by a startup called Ofo. The company now has around 2.5 million yellow-framed bikes in more than 50 cities in China. Its main rival, Mobike, which started up only a year ago, says it has several million of its orange-wheeled bikes spread across a similar area. Resistance comes in the form of cultural prejudice. 30 years ago, 63% of Beijingers pedalled to work. Now only 12% do. Many people think that cycling is only for the poor. But support for the environmentally friendly service is trickling down from the top. In January, the Prime Minister, Li Keqiang, told Mobike's co-founder that her business model was a revolution. Not presumably the kind that Mao led, but one that would have made the chairman feel at home with its profusion of two-wheelers. As China's citizens head out and hop on their bikes, over in America, we report on young men opting to head in and jump on game consoles. In our Money Talks podcast this week, we discussed research suggesting that men were shunning work in favor of video games. Here is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, asking our senior editor for economics, Ryan Avent, about the possible knock-on effects of this lifestyle choice. And does this lead to what economists call hysteresis? If you have spent the last couple of years playing Halo on your couch, then you're not equipped to work anymore. And once you're you know, go into the world of video gaming, you never come out again. Well, that is one of the big concerns. The the 20s tend to be really important years for people in terms of their working lives. They're years when you make a lot of connections, where you develop important skills, where you figure out what you're good at and what you'd like to do and job hop more than at other times in your life. Uh, and so to miss out on, on those experiences because you're playing games uh, is pretty hard. It's hard to get back and develop those skills later. And I think we could expect that people who, who find themselves in this situation, either because they've chosen it or been forced into it, are going to suffer uh, you know, lifelong consequences as a result. It's a very concerning trend. In our science and technology podcast, Babbage, which I host, we explored the possibilities brought about by voice cloning technology. Software has advanced so far that after recording just a few words, someone's speech can be accurately reproduced to say things that they didn't originally say. Here is science correspondent Benjamin Sutherland explaining what sort of misdeeds this technology could encourage. We are going to no doubt see all sorts of abuses from fake news to someone leaving a voicemail on uh, their boss's phone with all sorts of outrageous statements from a disliked colleague. 
It seems to me that the editor of The Economist should be Karl Marx. Okay, that's not really my cloned voice. I was just making it up. But it is clear this technology will be both very interesting and very dangerous. An article in our business section feasted on the food industry in Japan. While few nations rival the country for fine dining, its fast food market has also thrived, and for centuries. But low-cost restaurants are now under pressure and are searching for a little extra sizzle. From the 1700s, bowls of cold soba noodles made from buckwheat were cycled to wealthy clients on towering trays. Sushi began to glide past customers in 1958, when the first conveyor belt was installed. In 1970, its first homegrown hamburger chain opened, a year before McDonald's entered the market. Fast food chains have gorged on higher demand during Japan's two-decade economic slump. But fast food is now being squeezed by a combination of higher wages and still tepid consumption, and by foreign rivals winning over more Japanese stomachs. So, to entice customers back, some eateries are refining their service. Yuditaro now fries its tempura to order at its standing stalls, often in train stations. At outlets, it has replaced bar counters with tables and seats. MOS Burger, a local chain that opened in the 1970s, has sent staff new quality guidelines, from how to slice tomatoes to the temperature of the water in which the lettuce is dipped before serving, 4 degrees Celsius. How delicious! At Tasting Menu, those are the kind of guidelines we like to hear. We finish this week's menu with a dip into the letters section of the newspaper, where your thoughts, qualms, comments, and comedy are published each week. We had a returning writer to our pages, one Peter Prostoffer from the Woodlands in Texas. His correspondence referenced a recent embarrassing corporate episode in which a passenger was somewhat violently dragged off a United Airlines flight. It read... On September 26, 2015, you published a letter of mine in which I speculated that the new United Airlines CEO's prior experience as a railroad executive would serve him well when squeezing passengers into planes like cattle cars. How prescient I must have been. Looks like the same experience applies to squeezing people out of planes. Sadly, quite. That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find our other podcasts online. Keep sending your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. And if you like the program and you're not a subscriber, please do subscribe by going to subscribe.economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 